Hello, and welcome to the Los Angeles Magazine podcast. Your audible guide to exploring the city we love with a little help from our editors. I'm Leslie Souter, the magazine's official food fanatic, and for the next 30 minutes or so, your chaperone through the pages and streets of Los Angeles. It's April, and this month we explore everything from Coachella-themed pop-up shops to the revival of a historic bowling alley-turned-concert venue to a restaurant where it just might be worth spending a month's rent on deep-fried shrimp. We'll also spend a little time obsessing over one of the city's oldest martinis and sand-dab slingers, Musso and Frank, and unfold a new map to some of Hollywood's weirdest and most wonderful landmarks. But first, of course, it's time to ask Chris. Hi, my name is Stephanie, and I live in Hermosa Beach. I want to ask Chris a question about Angeline. I hear she won't drive her Corvette for more than a few years, so what does she do with the old ones? Well, Chris, I know this is a subject and a person near and dear to your heart, Miss Angeline. What, what's up with her um, automobile? Angeline, the billboard queen. Everybody <laughs> loves her. She's great. Yep. <laughs> so she has been making those specialized pink Corvettes since, well, Barbie got hers in 76, and Angeline got hers in 84, I believe. Uh, and so she just, she runs them until they wear out, but, she, but before she drives them around town to every coffee bean and every um, coffee shop that she hangs out in, she does a specialized thing where, where she does this paint job that she calls heroin pink. Okay. Uh, with an E. Okay. <laughs> and she takes the car apart, and she has each piece painted with her custom color, and then puts it back, but then she'll put little glittery adornments and special fuzzy cushions on the seats and such, and, and her, you know, fills the trunk, makes it into a gift shop. So whenever you encounter her, the trunk will be open and you'll be able to purchase some of her special wares out of the trunk. T-shirts and such. A lot of t-shirts, magnets, magazines, uh, her own magazine, uh, and and uh, any number of uh, Does items. Does she have a food too. section? Uh, no, no, <laughs> but, but she has special drinks at different places around town, special coffee drinks and things she likes. Um, but, you know, occasionally you'll see this box that she puts out, win a ride in the Corvette. And if you put your your business card in there and you win, so she'll take you around and spend spend part of the afternoon with you, and uh, you can ride in the in the newest version of the Corvette. The old ones she sort of deconsecrates, as she said, um, and takes them apart, repaints them, or has them uh, completely modified back there. You know, unmodified, I should say, back yeah. to their original look, so that they have lost their. You know. Angelineness. Yeah, yeah, and I was gonna say though, I wonder if it would drive up the price if there would be more of a value on it, knowing that it, it being able to drive an Angeline car. Well, for the first time, she's talking about auctioning one. Okay. So um, I will definitely uh, keep keep my readers on the blog uh, <laughs> up to the minute on that. Uh, she has not announced the time or the place yet, but yeah, the the uh, the last one, the one that was just recently retired, might be coming up for auction sometime soon. Oh boy, I, I will I will pinch my pink pennies. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Certainly, thank you. I've got Linda Immediato here to talk about style in the month of April. Uh, we are getting into warmer weather. We are going warmer places. What are we wearing and shopping for this month? Well, this month I think big news is Coachella. Yeah, I mean, what? What's what? Co- what thing? What? <laughs> yes, I think so. Which, um, which is totally showing up on my social media feed. Not so much as a concert, and more about an inspiration for what to wear and why you yeah. need to like lose ten pounds. Apparently, oh yeah, I saw I saw an article like <laughs> lose weight for Coachella right. and yeah. buy new a whole new wardrobe. Apparently, well, it's the biggest fashion show on the West Coast. I'd say people come from all over the world and just get decked out in their desert themed festival wear. 
So I'm constantly getting emails about pitches from brands that you know you would think of. H&M is partnering again as a sponsor. So they're actually going to have an in-store pop-up called H&M Loves Coachella. And so you'll be able to shop for your Coachella looks there. And then they have an interactive exhibit or sort of experience there where it's all geared to social media. So once you buy your stuff at H&M, then you go to the show, the festival. Um, actually, you'd be missing the music, but you get to walk through these um, interactive video screens, sort of like uh, create your own little dreamscapes. Second, this is the second year in a row they've done With that. a virtual so, reality type. Yeah. So it's all about hashtag, you know, H&M loves Coachella. And so... There's, there's that, but <laughs> <laughs> this, yeah, I know it sounds like more and more Coachella is like less about music. It's an entire lifestyle brand at this point. And there's so many shops that that will be, you know, you go shopping. It's like the Beverly Center at Indio Polo Grounds. <laughs> wow, that's unbelievable. Um, but like, what, what is the Coachella look like? If you had to describe it, it's, I, you know, I think fringe and you know hats sun Floppy hats, hats and, and, and yeah. Then there's this whole like um, desert uh, cowboy boots and cut off mm-hmm. shorts and cut offs and. Uh, cutoffs are really big in Coachella, yeah. and bell sleeves, <laughs> and lace. So let's say even that is not my demographic. Maybe <laughs> um, I, I want nothing to do with Coachella right. in any way. I'm much more maybe a tailored look. Uh, what else is going on in fashion for me this month in Los Angeles? So if you're not going to Coachella, you might want to swing by LACMA to check out their Raining Men, probably the best title of an exhibit. Yeah, that's pretty good. I can get the song out of my head. Um, but it's covering 300 years of men's fashion, So and on display will be modern looks that were inspired by these myths of menswear, you know, being sort of, well, for example, men's, men weren't allowed to wear topless swimming trunks until the 1930s. So mm. they'll have like an original pre-1930 men's swimsuit there. Which had a, it was a whole top to it. It was yeah. a tank top. Yeah, it was a tank top attached to it. It was like a romper. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and men, we tend to think of them as being more um, subdued, but this will show this exhibit shows that they they were as ornate as you know as as anyone as any woman embroidered bling there was this idea that um covered in crystals it gave you a bigger presence like the light that reflected off of your suits would kind of create a bigger um statue like Liberace and Elvis yes so I think it's gonna be a fun exhibit just stroll through and see just sort of how the evolution of menswear and and how things have changed and how things have kind of stayed the same so it'll be fun pleasure at LACMA that sounds great and perhaps it will inspire um, a whole new era of suits with um, a bit more bling Um, awesome well this sounds exciting and wonderful thank you so much Linda thank you so much Leslie okay I am here with Marielle Joachim our arts and culture editor who is here to tell us what we are supposed to go do in the month of April. What What am I doing? Well, here's, I know what everybody else is doing in the yes. month of April, which is tre- uh, going out with, you know, 100,000 other people to the Coachella Valley and watching bands play in the mm-hmm, heat. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a which, very aggressive couple of weekends, in my personal opinion. It's not really my speed. So I've done it, like, now six times. I'm not going to do it this year. I want to stay here. Yeah, if you want to stay here, yeah, wise choices all around, I would say. But um, if you want to see here, there is actually some cool indie little music scene situation going on in Highland Park at the newly reimagined Highland Park Bowl, which a lot of people might remember from its days as, as Mr. As Mr. T's. Mr. T's Bowl. Yeah, Mr. I'm, I have mixed feelings about this redo because I, like many people, kind of grew up going to shows at the original Mr. T's Bowl, mm-hmm. which was like awesomely terrible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like the sound was pretty bad. The lighting, I remember being way too bright, like for to see concerts, and it just felt like uncomfortably bright in there, like a bowling alley. Mm-hmm. And you were watching bands play on a bowling alley. Yeah, it was and kind of this like 
indie trifecta of like being able to smoke in like smoke inside. Oh yeah, and like weird up and coming local bands and and you know. D- Lots of good beer, seemingly. And this was when Highland Park was so not the Highland Park of today. Exactly. Um, Highland Park then, like, the, I'd, why would anyone ever go there on purpose? And it was to see really, really small, but sometimes really great bands play live. Exactly. So, um, so now, though, as with the entire area of Highland Park, it has gotten, um, I won't use the, the dreaded G word or the dreaded yes. H word, hipsterfied, but Upgraded? it's... Upgraded? Let's okay. <laughs> Rehab. Rehabbed? Um, yeah, so 1933 group who is responsible for Sassafras Saloon and Idle Hour and, you know, it's Bobby Green's whole whole little group of guys. Um, they took over the spot and they their whole idea was to maintain its colorful history but giving it a new um, updated kind of, you know, cool aesthetic for 2016. So there will still be eight refurbished bowling alleys, which is really cool. Um, They found this old mural of a forest in situ when they were doing all the reconstruction. What we were able to find is that in 1927, it was the site of one of LA's first bowling alleys. Okay, so So it's pretty old. It's a pretty old building. Um, No one was 100% sure exactly when it was built, but it's been at least around since 1927 when when it was one of LA's first bowling alleys. So it's going to have those eight refurbished lanes. Um, they've taken those pin holders, I guess. They're called something, but I can't remember. But they have these pin holders that have become light fixtures, which are really cool. So it's got this, like, you know, not the H word, but the H word aesthetic, yes. which is pretty which is pretty cool. And they're also, they're also going to have a food program, um, and there are plans in the future for some sort of brewery situate Brewery. That's a hard word to say. Brewery. Brewery. All right. Anyways, there's going to be a brewery situation happening. Um, How many beers have you had, Mary? <laughs> it's a little early for beers. A few shots into an Americano, though. So, so yeah, that's going to be really cool. It's opening at the end of this month, and um, and actually, we've got this really great as told to from a guy named Mike T- Mike TV that is on LAMag.com right now, who is there, and he used to book the bands in, in the good old days of Mr. T's Bowl. Um, and he, he talks about all, all of his wacky experiences booking bands there, too. So head to LAMag.com and check that out. I guess I'll go back and check out the new the new cool uh, Highland Park Bowl. I can't wait. It sounds great. Okay, so I am heading to Highland Park Bowl. Uh, but, you know, I may also want to stay in and flip on my, my small screen uh, at my abode and check out one of the funniest people on television right now and who you can see live here in Los Angeles and who you sat down with for our lightning round interview for April. Who is it? His name is Kumail Nanjiani, which is a mouthful, but he is just a wonderful dude. He's on Silicon Valley. Um, the HBO show comes back on April 24th, the, the season three premiere. So you can check it out um, on HBO, but we sat down with him because he is also one half of the duo who hosts The Meltdown, which is a weekly comedy show Wednesday nights, every Wednesday night. Um, he hosts it with the comedian Jonah Ray, and um, some of you guys might know that it's been picked up by Comedy Central as its own television show, and they get really great drop in people. They get really, really awesome, funny people on the bill every every week, so it's it's pretty phenomenal. So we sat down with him to talk about everything from the X-Files and baby dinosaurs to fashion trends that Silicon Valley programmers need in their lives. Let's hear it. So I'm going to ask you a few questions that are totally abnormal. abnormal. Does that sound good? Yes. Cool. Rad. All right. Give me four dead comedians you'd resurrect for a set at the Meltdown. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, George Carlin. So, so Mitch Hedberg. 
think he would have been so good on Twitter too. He would be like, oh my god, he'd be crushing it on Twitter. I'd love to have Robin Williams back. He'd perform. He'd done the show a couple times, and I've been a fan of his my whole life. So let's get Richard Pryor in there. What is a typically invent a typically LA Kickstarter campaign? Oh, I see a lot of Kickstarter campaigns here that are people just like, I need to pay my rent while I'm following my dreams. I sound like a crotchety old man. <laughs> if the mic you used during a set on stage was made of any kind of snack food, oh what my. would it be? Well, an ice cream cone would be easy, uh-huh. but you know what? I'll go chicken strips. <laughs> I would love to be eating chicken strips on stage. Which Angelino would you hire as your life coach? You know, I'd love to get a chef, some kind of chef, and just have him like cook for me and be like, okay, great, thanks, great advice. Could you could you make me a chicken parm or whatever? Chicken strips. Chicken strips. <laughs> make me some chicken strips. What is an LA fashion trend that Silicon Valley programmers could benefit from? Uh, hats, fun hats, fun right? Hats. People here love fun hats. People here do love fun hats. Yeah, you go to a bar and you see a bunch of fun hats and you're like, okay, this is a cool bar. What's an ult- What's your ultimate LA cheat code? Most fancy restaurants, like I go to this one called Squirrel, which yeah. is amazing. There's always a long line. Call ahead and skip the line and go up and just get it. And you can still sit there and eat it. You might, them, everyone looks at you like you're a dick, but it's like you could have called. The phone number's on Google. You wrote an X-Files episode that took place in LA. What would the plot line be? I just love monster episodes, like okay. where there's just like a monster. So I would love for there to be like a tiny dinosaur loose in Griffith Park. That would be great. It's just like around and attacking like fancy homes and stuff. Why a tiny dinosaur? Because a big dinosaur, everybody sees it, you know? Like, if it, if you see a dinosaur that's the size of, like, a lion, uh-huh. that's going to f*** you up. <laughs> you can't fight that. You can't fight a lion. What what video game character would you choose as, a part, as your partner for Wheel of Fortune? I'd take Luigi, because he, like, wants to show up his brother. You know, he knows how to be part of a duo. He does. He knows how to be second banana. <laughs> but he also has something to prove. Um, okay. Okay, thank you. thank you. So Very much. nice I meeting you. you. Nice to meet you too. Yeah. Hopefully I'll uh, come catch a show soon. Yeah, and I haven't been in a- So for the record, my microphone would be made of fish sticks, but I won't go there. Uh, that was really great. Thank you so much, Marielle. Yeah, thank you. Well, it's my favorite time. Uh, it is time to eat. Uh, that time of the show where we talk about all things delicious in the city of Los Angeles for the month of April. So I have with me our associate food editor, Josh Scherer, who helps me in tasting every uh, morsel of this fair city. And Josh, where did you enjoy eating for April? What was I, your favorite place? I enjoyed eating most places for April, probably. Um, but my favorite <laughs> place that I uh, went to was a Need & Co. pasta bar inside Grand Central Market. It's uh, something I think everyone here has been looking forward to for a long time, ever since Bruce Coleman, who's the chef at Pasadena's Union, which is just super obsessive about the way that they make pastas. Really incredible. These flour that's milled in Pasadena. Didn't even know there's a flour mill in Pasadena. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Grist & Toll. Mm-hmm. Great product. You're obviously especially. not up on the, the deep underground flour scene here in Los Angeles, but no, it's, it, it's raging. It's, yeah, got, it's epicenter. Flower raves and everything. It's yep. insane. The hate Ashbury of flower uh, is right here in Pasadena. I don't get that mm. reference. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyways, need and go possible. <laughs> Sorry, here you go. 
Nico Pasta Bar. Uh, it's really cool because it is doing very, very high-end pasta in a very, very casual atmosphere at Grand Central Market. Really big, bustling place, and Bruce Coleman has been devoting a lot of his time there, so he's generally there running the ship. Um, and they will make a phenomenal plate of, like, Bucatini alla matriciana, which is... I, Bucatini is my spirit noodle, and you can actually buy a shirt that says that literally those exact words at Need Co. So you're kind of pudgy with a hole in the middle? <laughs> kind of pudgy with, yeah, <laughs> hollow in the inside, completely empty, uh-huh. covered in a pork fat rich tomato who, sauce. Who gullibly soaks up everything around you? Correct, okay. yeah, that got way deep real fast. Uh, zero to a hundred. Uh, anyways, the the one thing, Neen got me in all the food is really phenomenal. He does his porchetta there, which he's been known for. He puts it in a sandwich with a little sidecar of like a porchetta, uh, pork jus. Let's so explain, like, let's back up and explain porchetta for those who, who aren't obsessively eating large portions of pig very very fair so porchetta is like playing god with a pig you're essentially saying that i think this pig can be arranged better so that i can cook it in one go and just slice it and serve it directly so you essentially take an entire pork loin and you lay that down you put uh generally a lot of different flavoring agents so it can be herbs spices some people even do sausage which i think bruce coleman does and then you wrap that in an entire skin on pork belly and then you tie that off and then you roast it until the skin is crackling so all the fat from the belly melts down through the herbs and then it keeps the pork loin all moist because pork loin is kind of the worst cut of pork because there's no fat in it well some people like the pork loin is lean and whatnot but For yes a i'm catini like myself <laughs> i prefer the fattiness of the belly i'm with you uh, and then he slices it really thin, puts it in a house-made roll, serves it with the sidecar of broth for dipping. It's really incredible. But sort of like a French dip. It is like a French dip. The porchetta dip, I believe he calls it. Mm-hmm. But uh, there is still something to me unnerving about eating maybe some of the best pasta I've ever tasted with a plastic fork. And I don't know if it's like a classist elitist thing for me, but there is still something really weird about it. And I don't know if I can like completely overcome that. For, you know the fifteen dollar price tag. This from the guy with the fresh ink of a spork on his arm. If he served <laughs> it with a spork, that would be a different thing. Okay. Because I appreciate you know the nostalgia and kitsch of that plastic fork is just like you know we we didn't necessarily put thought into it. I just give me a hard plastic fork even like a nice hard sturdy plastic fork that you will trust that I will return to the counter afterwards. And that that I believe is how food stalls should be run. Just travel with your own cutlery, cutlery sir. Just keep it a little knife roll in your pocket. Yeah. Well, I had a very opposite experience um, for the month of April. Um, your place was very sort of affordable and approachable and down market every day. I went to quite, had quite possibly one of the most ridiculously indulgent food experiences of my life. Um, in appropriately Beverly Hills at a little place called Tempura Endo, which is a Kyoto-based um, company. I think there's maybe one in Kyoto, and they've now opened one here. Um, it is a very intimate, like, um, I think there's less than 10 seats at this little sushi bar. It feels like a sushi bar. You walk in, very quiet, very hushed. You sit down, and it's a sort of very ceremonial meal. But instead of eating raw fish and rice, you are eating tempura. Um, but not just any tempura. They go all about the quality of the oils, and they use really fancy, you know, ingredients I think I mean at the end of the day it was like you know there was sweet potato and there was um, uh, okra and they had uh, shrimp you know you're used to having but they also had things like scallop with truffles and caviar and um, so it felt very very indulgent and it's like presented they have little uh, presented with these little salts various sort of dipping salts to season it with and it's all very fancy and very hushed and very serious it's also very expensive 
Like Gwyneth like, Paltrow called it sublime. Yeah, so yes. Yeah, so, any indication? Yeah, if you're rolling with Paltrow money, like then it is indeed sublime, and it was. It was a really nice experience. But I kind of it, it it's starts like the tasting menus for dinner at least when I was there this might have changed but the, the least expensive like oh honey let's just we're it's only Tuesday night we don't need to go crazy that one was $180 a person and then it went up from there um, to like 200 and 250 if you're like me I'm the like well I don't want to seem like a cheapskate and get the cheapest one but like the $300 one I don't know if I can do that tonight so like I think I went for the middle range which there's still that does not include tax tip or beverages um, so well, my producer's is... face, by the way, is going completely <laughs> nuts over here because it's it's insane. And but you know, like for some people, like if if Urasawa, which is a really famous, um, really expensive sushi place, right? And it is. It's like a ritual. It's your evening. It feels important. It is fancy. Like if that's the kind of thing to you that feels like this is you, how you like to indulge and spend your money, it feels like a really special night. They make it feel very special. There's this elaborate matcha tea ceremony at the end that they do, and it's you know it, it's not a quick meal. So you're it is your evening. Um, I will say the people I went with, we all were definitely saying we could potentially eat a double-double, like, after the meal. It was not a lot of food, um, but I, it's probably the amount of food I should be eating as a functioning, healthy human. But, um, you know, it felt very special. It felt indulgent. If that for you, if that's your splurge, if, like, a fancy meal is your splurge, totally worth it. Once-in-a-lifetime experience, certainly. It was something you can't get anywhere else. But just keep in mind, it's, uh, it's real pricey. Save your pennies, folks, and um, hit up one of the two great restaurants. Uh, there are many, many more great restaurants in the city of Los Angeles that we write about. Um, you can find them in our dine listings in the magazine or online at lamag.com. Thank you, Josh. Cool. Thanks, guys. I'm here with Editor-in-Chief Mary Melton, who will entice us with our April issue's Big Read, which this month spans a little bit of uh, music history, L.A. history, it's the, the law, the fuzz, um, all of it kind of wrapped into one. So tell me a little bit about, about uh, the Big Read. Mike Barrett, a writer actually based up in Oregon, and he pitched us this story years ago. He wanted to do a piece about his father, who was a really macho cop, and this relationship that he unexpectedly formed one morning in 1971 when he got a call at the Van Nuys police station from an engineer who had been up all night recording, a drummer, and was on a few, uh, you know, illicit drugs. Recreational mm -hmm. uh -huh, substances. Yeah, yeah. and uh, had taken an engineer hostage because he didn't want to pay the bill. Mike pitched this years ago. We wanted to do the story. And there's a little bit of a twist in terms of who this guy was who took the uh, engineer hostage. He was the cousin of actor Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, oh, that's right. I forgot to wrap in the other fun details, celebrity so, history. Yeah, Frank Hoffman. He had kind of grown up with Dusty, Cousin Dusty. Cousin Dusty. And Uncle Uncle Harry raised him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he didn't want to kind of soil the family name by going public with this story while he was still alive. And Mike waited until Frank passed and Frank's dad Gary passed as well and Mike came back to us uh, late last year and said my father passed away a couple years ago and Gary has now died and I'm ready to write this story uh, if that's not a tease enough someone that had to wait out two deaths to put a story on paper and um, I'll just say I don't want to spoil the ending but it reads like a feature film. I mean, I just, it's, it's juicy. It's, um, the descriptions of this sort of like LSD riddled, addled, um, drummer in the early seventies at sound, the famed sound city studios, right, which, which Dave Grohl made a documentary about a couple of years ago. Yeah. Like, so it's, um, and, and sort of the, um, 
cop turned hostage negotiator and the, that sort of dynamic and also the police force um, and its role sort of in the 70s versus today. And it's Yeah, it really is a, kind of a profound piece when you think about it because there was so much patience shown by this by the sergeant. I mean, it go, this hostage-taking incident goes on for a long time, and they had many opportunities in which they could have taken out Gary, and they didn't. So you do pause and think about a relationship between a cop and someone who he, he's really trying to help. He's not there to shoot him. He's there to try to help him out of the situation. And also, like you're saying, I love how it brings to life the 1970s Valley, the Adam 12 years. <laughs> you know, it really paints a picture of this really hot day and, and how important recording studios are. They were really, even in the 70s, like these, they turned into, you know, these, these really incredibly important places in LA history because so many of the most famous albums of all time were, were recorded at these places. Um, and then just the fact that this story would take such an unexpected twist that would span decades and profoundly change both of their lives. I would strongly encourage people to see what that twist is. As would I. All right, let's shift gears really quick and go over the hills from the valley into Hollywood. So in our April issue, we dedicate quite a bit of space to uh, a restaurant that is near and dear to my heart, and I know the hearts of many of you. Uh, Musso and Frank, also I think officially known as Musso and Frank Grill uh, in Hollywood that has been around for nearly a century at this point. It is more than a restaurant. It's more than a landmark. Um, it's sort of a piece of living history that you can go and sit in and um, drink a martini and uh, eat uh, a piece of food that your grandparents likely experienced themselves. And it's really a unique piece of, um, of LA history. Uh, the restaurant, which I know also holds, uh, you have a sentimental soft spot for as well. I've had many milestones celebrated at that restaurant. So why, you know, why a restaurant that is 100? It's not turning 100 right now. Maybe 100 in a couple of years, so we wanted to get in early yeah. on the celebration. You know, so, um, you know, it, it's, I know it's a restaurant we all talk about. It's the restaurant that I know as a food editor and who works with many food people, it's the restaurant we all go to when we're off duty. It's the right. place we choose to go to. And I wanted, I'm curious why we decided in this issue to, to finally give it in a big official glossy salute. Well, as you know, more than anyone, probably at the entire magazine or in Los Angeles, we devote a lot of pages to the new at, in this magazine, right? A lot of what's the newest, hottest, coolest place to go, who are doing things, what chefs are doing things that are very unusual, surprising, who's reinventing cuisine. To your point there, Musso's is not reinventing cuisine. They're celebrating cuisine that's been around for decades. But part of the, the mythology, I think, about this city is that we have no history. And Musso's is history incarnate. I mean, it is, as you said, almost 100 years old. Oldest restaurant in Hollywood. I love this, the, the, the sign touts. And we felt it was time to just take a really endearing look at it, its legacy, and we broke up the restaurant into its parts, right? Its main components, its waiters, its decor, its location, its mythologies. So Michael Callahan, who's a wonderful writer, a frequent contributor to Vanity Fair, and a very big fan of the place, went in there and just kind of immersed himself. And I'm like, that's like the plumbest assignment of all. You, you have this sense there I write about Musos, it actually inspired my editor's note in this issue, because you have a sense there that you are just soaking up all of the history that came before you in those booths. This was the place to go for literary Hollywood for decades, 30s, the 40s, the 50s. And you can still walk in there and on many, many a night be guaranteed a celebrity sighting, but it's not your IV kind of celebrity sighting. It's really a celebrity sighting. It's like A-list celebrities who go there because they can be safe there. 
right? There's like a no photo policy there. You know that you're going to have a great little meal tucked away in a corner. No one's going to bother you. Uh, I say in my editor's note that I liken this place to everything is changing so quickly in our world, and this is the place I can go to when I want to just hit pause on play. And it has really retained all of that without seeming dingy, which is kind of incredible. And of all the steakhouses in Los Angeles, this is our Peter Luger, right? This is our John's Grill of San Francisco. Even Indianapolis has an amazing, great historic steakhouse. But wherever I go to, to, to any of these other cities, I always think, well, which is what, what's their musos? We are the only one with this musos. But it feels like everybody has a bit of a story about muso. Yeah, I think you could call it a muso moment. A muso moment. We're going to call them muso moments. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone has a story about an experience or the first time they went or something great that happened there. Um, and I think you probably have more than one. I do. I have I have several. I, I hit on a few of them in the editor's note. My first meal at Musso was a half of an avocado and an iced tea because I couldn't legally drink yet. And I went in there with my high school friend because that was the fancy place and that's what we could afford to get on the menu. And I knew I was going to be back there many times. So yeah, I have engagement party stories and crazy New Year's Eves that involved too many gimlets and a very, very uh, loud screening of Titanic later, in which I emoted a lot. <laughs> when, when Leo went down, the gimlets really heightened the, the whole experience. Um, I think my funniest, uh, or, or maybe most treasured Musa moment was I was able to interview a former chef there, Michel Bouget, who'd been there for decades at the time I interviewed him in the late 90s. And he ended up being very confessional in this interview and um, acknowledging the fact that he'd worked in many hotels for many rich people and he had made mistakes and he had paid the price. And I said, well, you know, don't worry about it. No one's, no one's perfect. And um, he responded to me that, uh, you know, that's what happens if you love women. Yes. <laughs> and I went, oh my gosh. And he asked me if I was married. And at Warning the time, to all. Yeah, at the time I said, well, I'm engaged. And he said, uh, congratulations to you, madame. And for years, this was actually framed in Musso's. So I would walk into Musso's, and it was in the front room, and there was the announcement of my engagement framed in a matted, you know, beautiful way. Well, in some of the redesigns, it's it's been relegated, I guess, to the storage room. But for many years, that was a real point of pride for me. Uh, that would be that and a shamrock at Tom Bergen's, and you can you've really you've really made it in the city. You go home on that. Well, I think that is um, the proper way to kick things off uh, with several Musso moments. It turns out many members of the Los Angeles Magazine staff have memories uh, that they have occurred within the walls of Musso and Frank. So let's hear some of them. I am Julia St. Pierre, and I'm the production director at Los Angeles Magazine. And I've been going to Musso and Frank since 1989 when I worked down the street at LA Style Magazine. So one of my many Musso moments, I was sitting in the large dining room, I guess is what you would call it, the room with the bar, where there are booths that you sit up against the wall and you face out into the dining room. And Lily Tomlin was at the booth next to us. So we thought that was pretty cool. And then at one moment I looked up and Sean Penn was walking in front of me very intently to greet someone and I watched him walk the whole length of the room over to shake Francis Ford Coppola's hand and they greeted and embraced and I was like wow I just love this place and I, it is still to this day one of my absolute favorite restaurants in Los Angeles. My name is Jean Green. I'm the small business specialist at Los Angeles Magazine, formerly of LA Weekly. At LA Weekly, on Friday was our deadline. At least once a month, all the reps after deadline would go to Musso's and Frank's. Some were there for the martinis, some were there for the steaks, all of us were there for the Hollywood glamour. I had some of the best 
times served by the best people in Hollywood, and I will forever be grateful for the true Hollywood that Musos and Franks offers. I am Leslie Souter, again, as maybe you know by now, and I'm the magazine's food editor, and appropriately, I have a Musso moment. Um, the first time I ever went to Musso and Frank uh, was with my grandparents, um, and they took, they were living in San Diego, but they took me to a show at the Pantages, I think, and I was a teenager, and we went to dinner at Musso and Frank before, and we sat in this big booth, and it felt very fancy, and I remember thinking, this must be what fine dining in Los Angeles is all about, uh, though even at the time, I think the restaurant was as old as my grandparents were, which was, you know, in their mid-80s. Uh, but it was a really great meal. But my, my actual favorite Musso moment is when um, years later here at Los Angeles Magazine, I had the opportunity to do an article on the then new owner um, who was the next generation that had taken over. And I had the opportunity to sit down at a lunch on a day, day the restaurants closed, which I think was Sunday, and sit down with the entire family around one table and everyone ate. And it was great and I learned history and I got to hear fun stories. But my favorite part is I made... I went, made every single member of the family go around and say what their favorite thing on the Musso menu is because, let's be honest, the menu's great, but it's full of old-sounding things and you don't know what they are. And from that, I have culled my signature order at the Musso and Frank Grill that I will now share with you uh, so you can all make sure you have the, the greatest experience when you're there. You have to start with, and I learned this, the avocado cocktail, which is little more than an entire avocado cut up into cubes, served in a little metal dish that's then uh, on ice, so it's a chilled metal bowl. And then there's just really, really thick pink Thousand Island dressing just drenched all over the top. And you get these little metal forks and you get to pluck out little pieces of dressing covered avocado and pop them into your mouth and it's perfectly ripe and really simple and delicious. That's, you gotta start with that. Then you move on to the grenadine of beef, which that was one of those things I had never heard of, the grenadine of beef. But it was um, Jordan, who was the then owner, his cousin Mark runs it now, but it was his favorite dish, which is sort of just a pounded steak. So it's really super tender and it's got uh, like a Bernays sauce on it and you can get it with whatever the side is. Sometimes it's asparagus or sometimes it's green beans, but it's always delicious, but the meat is always tender and really flavorful and awesome. And then purely for name value alone, I always get the diplomat pudding for dessert. Diplomat pudding is sort of like a kind of cakey parfait thing with berries and some whippy creamy stuff and some cake morsels and it's it comes in like a little parfait glass and it's delicious. Other people opt for the flannel cakes. I see why they would go that way, but it doesn't have the word diplomat in it. It just makes you feel fancy. So avocado cocktail, grenadine of beef, diplomat pudding. You will not leave disappointed. Of course, a few more martinis help everything go down well. And that is my Musso moment. My name is Brittany Brownbach. I am the integrated account manager here at Los Angeles Magazine. And my Musso moment is in an article that we had done a few years ago on a profile of a server from Musso and Frank in the magazine. And I was born on my grandma's birthday, and so we always get together for our birthday. And my dad, having no concept of Los Angeles Magazine article or anything, was like, let's go to Musso and Frank's. I was like, oh, we just read about it. I was so excited. I'd never been there. And so we went and um, our server was the actual guy that we had profiled and he'd been there, you know, like for 40 plus years and was like, he was a celebrity. Like there actually was a celebrity like three tables down. I didn't know who it was. It was like some CSI person or cold case. I don't know. One of the whatever. But it was more the actual server that is the celebrity. And it was just 
I was like really excited and I told him, I was like, I work at Los Angeles Magazine, we just did a profile. And he was like so excited and proud and I don't know, it was just a really <laughs> fun moment because I had just started here and felt um, quintessential Los Angeles Magazine moment. Hello, I'm Chris Nichols and I have a Musso moment. The best time, the greatest time, the most recent time I was at Musso's was probably um, for a birthday party that our former city councilman Tom LaBonge put together for Jerry Marin, the um, last surviving munchkin from The Wizard of Oz. He uh, he sang the Lollipop Guild song. He was a tough little kid, you know, and that. And he went on to be a, um, an Oscar Mayer wiener spokesman and uh, had an illustrious acting career. Um, and in his mid-90s now, he enjoys going to Musso, and he um, somebody asked him, you know, his secret to longevity, you know, and he ordered the, the veal. I always get the veal. And, you know, and he uh, he really uh, was enjoying himself with a cigar and a big bow tie and a snap brim cap. And uh, what a funny little guy. I really enjoyed spending time with him there and in that special magic room uh, at Musso. And, uh, of course, I uh, ordered my usual chicken a la king. I have to take a break from our Musso moments. Because uh, when you have Chris Nichols, L.A. scholar slash recreational menu what can I say, hoarder, no. or is it more of a okay, a collector, recreational? Uh, the reason for my <laughs> when you have him uh, in in your office um, and you're talking about Musso and Frank, you need to talk about the Musso and Frank menus because um, there's something rather special about them, isn't there, Chris? Well, I I love that they are just the last place doing it doing it right, doing it the way that you did it in the 30s and 40s and Which 50s is? and before. I mean, they're printing it every day, but it's also a, an encyclopedia and it's a history book. And it's an unusual piece of graphic design, and and there's a couple of uh, special things about it. One is that it, it literally has not changed in at least 70 years, and probably earlier than that. The actual design. Yeah, the front with the illustration of the of the folks going into the restaurant on Hollywood Boulevard, and um, oh look, you've got one here in your office. I sure do. <laughs> That's cool. Yep. You know the selection and the and the, the oddball things that that have survived miraculously over the decades. Um, that you could still get jellied consomme and and some of these really wonderful things. I I was kind of curious to see if some of the stuff from today um, goes back to the earliest years. And so I mean I'm I'm looking at at some of these from the 30s and and the 50s here and very similar to what we've got today. Um, but the other neat thing is that the specials, the daily specials, yes. are exactly the same as they've been for all these decades. So it's always been Tuesday corned beef and cabbage. Wednesday's sour broughton. Potato with potato pancakes. Correct. Thursday, we're comparing, by the way, an, a, a recent <laughs> contemporary menu to an old menu. Uh, Thursday, homemade chicken, chicken pot, pot pie. pie. Not that store-bought stuff. It's homemade, ladies and gentlemen. Friday, bouillabaisse marseillaise. And um, Saturday, braised short ribs of beef with vegetables. Well, a couple things have changed. The, the bouillabaisse has taken a um, siesta while they go with the braised short rib on Friday. And they're not open on Monday anymore, so the minced chicken is um, is off the menu. Uh, yeah, no more minced chicken. But, you know, I, I when I did a piece on Musso and Frank a long time ago and talked about the menu items, it has changed over the years. The actual menu items themselves have changed. Different Certain things have come on and come off, but just very, very slowly in a way that is imperceptible. Definitely. And, and, I, and I just love that in my vast collection of old LA restaurant menus, um, that you see things like this in places like Mike Lyman's or Cook Steakhouse or these historic places that 
that we've only read about, um, never got to see, but can live it now in the 21st century right on Hollywood Boulevard. So isn't that awesome? How many menus, really quickly, estimate are in your collection overall? Uh, uh, about a thousand. Um, yeah, but they're just L.A. and just mostly, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Hey, what's up, everyone? Uh, my name is Frankie Guad, and I am a sales assistant over here at Los Angeles Magazine, and I actually also produce this podcast, so you're welcome. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'm the man behind the curtain. Uh, let's see, my Musa moment uh, actually just happened, let's see, like three weeks ago. It was the first time I ever went there, and I actually went because of the article that we wrote in this month's issue. I went with a co-worker, and because of how much the staff loved our article, on them, uh, they treated us like royalty. We basically just had the waiter order us everything that that Musso and Frank is known for so we could get the real experience. I'm not normally a martini guy. Uh, I'm more of like whiskey, old fashioned. But I mean, if you go to Musso and Frank and you don't get a martini, then I, I feel like you need to you know take a long look in the mirror after and ask yourself why. They sat us in the Marilyn Monroe booth right where her and Joe DiMaggio sat and had dinner and it's insane i'm a real history buff so marilyn monroe that's huge um, and joe dimaggio i'm from new york so go yankees <laughs> and actually the beautiful thing about being a producer of this podcast is the martini shaking noise that you hear in between everybody's musa moments is actually r real martinis that i made to edit this so you know life uh that's my musa moment Okay, I'm back with our scholar extraordinaire, Chris Nichols, Hello. to um, do our podcast version of our monthly feature time frame. Right now, I'm sitting here in front of me is a uh, large fold-out document that has been placed in front of me that kind of smells <laughs> of old paper, even though it looks new. Yeah. Um, and on it are, is a little map of Hollywood and a bunch of cool places pointed out on it. What what do I have here in front of me? Wait, you can hear the, the paper. Yeah, it's really massive. It's this big fold-out map like you put in your glove box um, from the Mama Shelter Hotel on Ooh, la la. Selma Selma and, and Wilcox. Wilcox in Hollywood. Um, so they just did this. Jim Hyman designed it, one of my favorite designers. He's an editor over at Toshin, but he made this great map, um, which sends you to some really um, weird places that maybe the tourists wouldn't uh, think to go. For like, the, in historically minded play, these are these. Yeah, are, yeah. I mean, you know, there's the Philip Marlowe fictional office, but then there's also lots of like strip clubs and, and rundown liquor stores. So he's <laughs> he's given a he's given a tour. Um, you know, you've got your Cinerama Dome, but then you've got Playboy Liquor. You know, so it's a. Why it's does a real it say I should? Of, go, why should I go to Playboy Liquor? Um, well, I think he just likes the fact that it's the last of you know this this breed of uh, noir CD Hollywood that's very quickly disappearing. Mm -hmm. um, and he doesn't steer you to many of the new places, but he does he does steer you know, Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles is one of the newer, newer places he sends you to, you know. So it's a lot of ancient stuff. But, um, you know, anything that's highly thematic, like, like Sassafras on Vine Street, is mm -hmm. a beautiful thematic newer bar that he does like. But of course he's, I think, much happier directing you to the Frolic Room, you know, or someplace. Musso and, Musso and Frank. Is <laughs> yeah, Musso and Frank well. is on here. But Yamashiro. But it's just it's great because it really does feel like something you could 
fold up, put in your back pocket, and take with you. It's got a map with all the little dots on it, and then it's got little descriptions and cartoons and neat stuff. So I guess if you go to this mama shelter, they'll they'll just give you one at the at the uh, concierge. All right, this sounds very cool. Thank you, Chris. Thanks. That is it, April in a nutshell. Stay tuned for next month when we celebrate the two things our city does best, food and awesome weather, together at last. And we'll chat with comedian and My Little Pony connoisseur, Patton Oswald. Thanks, everyone.